Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman. This is the flagship of our little local newspaper to the world where we try to make sense of the beguiling planet and era we find ourselves in. And today is an interesting one. We look at the American foreign policy blob's characteristic overstretch regarding Ukraine. As ever, the Americans go and the establishment of foreign policy, of which I am a member, goes from under to overconfidence. These ridiculous swings are not strategic, but are almost always the result of success or failure on the battlefield. And the problem with not working by strategy is like a fruit fly, you over and underestimate constantly rather than taking things as they come, to quote the Maharishi, rather than doing that, which would be a very smart thing to do. Instead, we over or underestimate everything and sound ridiculous in doing so and end up with a very flawed foreign policy. And let's use Ukraine as an example because it, it is absolutely a perfect example. But again, because what we do here and why we're successful as a political risk firm and as a community is that we apply history. This is applied history. Let's take the relevant example. Early in the first Cold War, we are now entering the second one, then the dominant force was the Soviet Union with China as its ally. Now the roles are reversed and China is the dominant force against the United States with Russia as its ally. But early on in that first Cold War and really a, the first key moment once the institutions were set like NATO, the Marshall Plan, the Truman Doctrine, the first key moment was the Korean War of 50 to 53 in which my father fought with conspicuous bravery. And I remember him warmly, both as a wonderful father and for his service in doing so. He made it all the way up to the north of Korea and then heard the weird symbols and gongs that were about to impel a million Chinese over the border as they pushed the Americans back down on an 800-mile heroic, in fact, famed retreat, where eventually, due to the genius of Matthew Ridgway, the general in charge after the overrated Douglas MacArthur and the heroism of American soldiers like my dad, the line was stabilized miraculously in South Korea, was saved. But it's a great example, Korea, of America's over and under confidence. Early on in the lightning strike that began the war, the North Koreans pushed the, Southern, the South Koreans badly trained, at the time dictatorial, barely an ally under Syngman Rhee, and they pushed them back down. And then when the Americans and the UN forces got there, they continued to retreat to an area called the Pusan Perimeter, at the south southern part of the Korean Peninsula. And there was doom and gloom everywhere, and everyone said, the sky has fallen in and American soldiers are too decadent, and the West can't compete with the Soviets, who are much more disciplined, and almost was in near-racialist terms. The Asiatic hordes were going to overwhelm us. The Russian-supplied North Koreans were more motivated. And in the end, we, we had only catastrophe ahead of us. Then Douglas MacArthur, in his last move of genius, highly erratic leader that he was, landed at Incheon and brilliantly surprised the North Koreans, who began to flee northwards as MacArthur tried to cut them off with this great amphibious landing, which worked brilliantly. And suddenly the shoe was on the other foot, and the American coverage went from the sky is falling in to we are invincible. Again, none of this is about strategy, and all of this is about what's going on in the field. And this indeed is what happened. And so once they got back to the 38th parallel, which is roughly where the border is today, dividing South and North Korea, the Truman people hesitated, but only for a moment. 
Having accomplished their initial war, war aims, they then set out having new ones, not because geostrategy in the world had changed, but because the battlefield prospects had changed and the lure of moving forward. And again, the reason I study classics along with applied history is that these feelings are as old as the ancient Greeks, and this is hubris, excessive self-confidence. We went from being unable to beat anyone to being able to beat everyone because of the beautiful move at Inchon. And so rather than accepting our war aims and stopping at the 38th parallel, which would have shown strategic discipline, rollback became the order of the day led by the vainglorious MacArthur, who was confident he could sweep away North Korea, even despite China warning the Americans that they would get involved in the war if the retreat continued. And in that most dangerous historical of phrases, everyone would be home by Christmas. And throughout American history, when anybody says anyone would be home by Christmas, be careful. It means there's a problem coming. And sure enough, my dad and the rest of the troops got up to the Yalu River, the border with China, and suddenly a million Chinese crossed the border. Their warnings had been ignored. The idea of strategic prudence had been ignored. In fact, the idea of strategy had been ignored because what was much more enticing was to move forward based upon changed prospects on the battlefield. And then we rude the day and only because of the genius of Ridgeway, one of the great unsung commanders of our time and the heroism of the American troops there was the border finally stabilized where it should have been in the first place at roughly the 38th parallel. And the United States had itself its first major tactical victory of the Cold War. But an awful lot of people died and an awful lot of suffering ensued for very little reason because of this lack of strategic restraint. And the answer for why is hubris and the fact that nobody wanted to stand up to MacArthur in his moment of victory. And Truman ruled the day later when he and MacArthur became sworn political enemies. But it would have been very hard to stop him, but it should have been attempted because the strategy, which is containment, you do not roll back, which is the strategy of the far right, because it invites nuclear war. And you do not appease Stalin, which was the policy of the left under Henry Wallace. Instead, you set lines, you keep to them. You have a political contest with the Soviets that, given the attractiveness of American culture, you're pretty sure you're going to win. But that went out the window. After Korea, there was more restraint. In came Eisenhower, who successfully and adroitly ended the war. And no more wars occurred during the Eisenhower years. And this is one of many reasons I think Eisenhower historically is the second most important and best president of the 20th century. And there were good ones then, but second only to the giant Franklin Roosevelt. I think you have to put Eisenhower because he learned from Korea and even more importantly from being his own personal biography of being general of the army, that strategic restraint is everything. And so we had eight years of American economic growth Eight years of peace and prosperity looks awfully good. And this was the aftermath of the mistake in Korea. Well, this applies, it seems to me, in terms of our applied history directly to the situation in Ukraine very early on in the new Cold War. It's the first major military contest in Ukraine is, in fact, the second largest invasion of Europe um, over the last, say, well, since World War II, it's number two after World War II and the largest in memory. And the initial reading of that war was similar to the doom and gloom in Korea, that everyone thought the Russians would steamroll the Ukrainians, 
in a matter of days and possibly weeks. And in fact, the Russian battle plan, which we have looked at before in this podcast, had Putin taking Kiev in two days and taking the whole of a country larger than that of France. It's a huge landmass, Ukraine. I've traveled there many times. And, you know, you spend a lot of time in the train. Bigger than France. And they would take that in two weeks. Kiev in two days, Ukraine in two weeks. The whole rotten edifice would fall apart because Putin miscalculated that Ukraine wasn't indeed even a nation. And most of the estimates went along. And in fact, the CIA, again, one wonders what we spend that $50 billion on. Not always fantastic political risk analysts, to put it mildly, didn't see the demise of the Soviet Union coming, uh, didn't understand what was going on in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's an awful lot of money to get these bad results. Uh, They're the Eurasia Foundation of the government. Um, it's quite extraordinary. And again, in Ukraine, they thought they were their positions were in line with most intelligence agencies in the West, not just them, and with Putin, that the whole thing would collapse quickly. And in fact, they went to Kiev famously to extract Zelensky, President Zelensky, and he famously said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And that was the moment people began to see spines stiffen in Kiev and that they'd gotten it entirely wrong. Having gotten it wrong and not stopping to pause as to why analytically they're so dim, instead we went from saying Ukraine was nothing, the Russians are going to sweep in this inferiority complex, to now hubris, predictably, because on the offensive, the Ukrainians having blunted the drive at the gates of Kiev, the Russians are having to now settle for a war of attrition, where they're making steady, if unspectacular, gains in the Donbass. They've secured the southern rim of the country, uh, from from Crimea back, as we've said, along the Sea of Azov, which is now a Russian lake, and the Black Sea between the Donbass region and Mariupol all the way to Crimea. Uh, they've made gains there, but they certainly aren't going to take over the entirety of the country. And in the euphoria that follows this victory, ridiculously, if predictably, American war aims, the American foreign policy establishment, the blob, as the Obama people disparagingly and correctly call it, my buddies at the Council on Foreign Relations, the present and former heads of, of the Washington foreign policy establishment, have adjusted their war aims, not because strategy in the geopolitics of the, uh, of the era have changed, but simply because the Ukrainians have done better than anybody hoped for. And the initial war aims, which I supported then and supported now, were to provide the Ukrainians with def defensive weaponry to secure the sovereignty of their state, that it would not be obliterated. We would give them defensive weapons. We would give them real-time intelligence. We would put sanctions in place that would nobble the Russian economy, smaller than that of Italy. And we would, through embargoes of particularly energy and weaponry, which are the only two things Russia exports, bring them to their knees and make them pay a tremendous price for their invasion. I'm absolutely for that. I still am for that. Because I'm a realist and I have an overarching foreign policy, the religion of the religion school of thought, um, I have no need to change what's going on. But everyone else did, because utopians are not so set in their ways, and predictably the only thing that they are uniform about is expanding aims. This is something they constantly do. And so because of the change on the battlefield, suddenly things look great. So the war aims have been adjusted. Rather than just holding territory and leaving Ukraine as it was in 2014 with the Donbass, de facto most of it or much of it, most, most of Luhansk and much of Donetsk under the control of Russian-backed separatists in Crimea 
under the control of the Russians and try to save the rest for Ukraine, which seemed to me a reasonable war aim and was the initial war aim. And as former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger put in the last week, still should be the war aim because that could be accomplished for once we can accomplish a goal. The war aims have now changed. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin let the cat out of the bag when he said, no, the new war aim is to degrade the Russian military as much as possible so they can't invade anybody else. And worse, Biden has gone on record as saying, we're not going to tell Zelensky what his war aims are. Initially, Zelensky's war aims seemed quite reasonable, in line with American war aims, which is we merely want our territory back as it was before the war. Sounds fine. Now, there are an awful lot of folks saying, on to Crimea. On to the Donbass, because as the Ukrainians do better and as they get now over $50 billion in American aid, an extraordinary amount of money, they realize that sometime in the summer they may be able to go on the offensive. And as they go on the offensive, we are now talking about rollback, hauntingly familiar to Korea. We are now discussing rollback, and this should chill the blood of anyone who knows any history at all. And this is why applying history is so incredibly important, because if it doesn't repeat itself, it surely rhymes. And we can see the rhyme right here. We shouldn't change our initial war aims. Whatever happens on the battlefield initially, be it bad or good. And now that it's good, we're saying, let's roll the Russians back. Certainly neoconservatives are, along with Wilsonian hawks. This is the unholy alliance, guys, that brought us the Iraq war. And the people who did it, and I will call them out, people like former Ambassador McFall, who was a Wilsonian hawk, people like the columnists Kagan, Crystal, and Applebaum, all these people shouldn't be listened to. Why? They've been wrong about every big thing. They were wrong about Iraq, paid no price despite a quarter million people dying. We should hold people accountable in a republic. These are the people who think that every problem can be solved militarily and want to push Russia back to its pre-2014 borders. Do we really think that Vladimir Putin would allow that to happen without escalating the war or indeed even using tactical nuclear weapons? And is it in our interest to degrade Russia to the point the desperate, horrified as it is, that this is not going to lead to an escalation, which will be the only thing Putin does. He can't lose this war. A draw, a messy compromise, a form of detente thereafter, that can be fine. But rollback will put his survival on the line. And then he will do anything, literally anything, to stay in power and stay alive. That is the reality of what we're going on. Like Korea, it is a messy compromise, one that was reached finally there on the battlefield in spite of people's stupidity, but at tremendous cost of life and largely unnecessary. When if they just stopped after Inchon, hard as that would be, not given into that temptation in a realist manner and kept to the lines of containment, it would have been better. Now realists are saying, we are threading the needle. We're not saying be isolationists and don't care about Ukraine. Give them defensive weaponry to secure what's there. But we're certainly not willing to bankroll rollback, which would corner Putin to the point he might very well do something we would all regret and would lead to an escalation of the war at a minimum and would mean that for a generation there is absolutely no outreach to Russia. Pariah state as it is, Putin is not going to be leader of Russia forever. Why? I understand actuarial timetables. At some point, he'll die and someone else will come in 
And we need that opening because we're worrying about the bigger issue, which again, mustn't be forgotten, is China. And so Korea lets us look at Ukraine in a very different way that really does matter. The American foreign policy establishment characteristically is overstretched because it does this because it doesn't have fixed strategic principles. It merely reads the newspaper and adjusts its thinking. That's tactics, but that's not a strategy. And in a new era, as complicated as the one we find ourselves in, strategy is a necessity. So let the ghost of Korea guide us. Because remember, after Korea, Eisenhower and Truman settled upon a policy containment doctrine that led to resounding victory in the Cold War under Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. If we can show that kind of discipline and learn from our mistakes, this overstretch of the foreign policy blob can and must be corrected. And as ever, realism is the answer. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Around the World in 20 Minutes as we look at the ghost of Korea and what, what it can tell us about Ukraine, applying history as I hope only we can. Those of you who've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we are grateful to have you on board our community as it exponentially booms. And for those of you who have subscribed, again, please do give the $70 a year we're asking so we can keep them coming. $70 a year is a very small price to pay for getting world-class political risk news, constant inter interactivity through our community, and the best little local newspaper to the world there could possibly be. Have a great day and talk to you very soon.